Open your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 1 as we are looking at one of the prayers of the Apostle Paul. There have been a number of books of prayers that have been published through the years, some very popular ones like the Valley of Vision or Spurgeon's Prayers, and they're edifying and encouraging to believers uh, to read. I know I enjoy it myself, but there's nothing that really approaches what we have in the New Testament in terms of the record of the apostles' prayers. We have many of them written in these epistles, and they give us not only uh, incredible insight into the heart and mind of one of the greatest servants and saints of all time, but they are inspired texts that give us great insight into really what, uh, what was God's work in Paul's heart as he prayed all of these various prayers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is a prayer of thanksgiving, and it is revealing to us what was on Paul's mind when he was giving thanks, what was so important to him as he turned his heart to the Lord and began to pray. I sometimes wonder if we were to record our own prayers, if someone were to take some account of what you prayed, what would it contain? What would it reveal? What would... What would take up all of your time and your focus in your prayer life? It probably would reveal what is most important to you, whether it is some trite thing about the beautiful sunshine or the grassy knolls, or whether it is even some infatuation with the material things that you hoped for or the Lord might give you. Those are not necessarily bad, but But they are not the things which consumed Paul when he came to give thanks. His prayers were so taken up with where his heart was. His prayers, his thanksgiving were so taken up with what his deepest desires were. And he prayed and he gave thanks when he saw the Lord work because he so longed for these things. That when they did take place, his heart was overcome with, with joy. And so what we have here in this prayer of thanksgiving is a testimony to that. A testimony to what was so important for the Apostle Paul. You remember he's writing this because he had been, he had been uh, abruptly separated from the Thessalonians. He had been chased out of town after just a couple of months with them chased down to Berea, chased on to Athens, and now all the way down to Corinth from where he's writing. He had been chased out of town, and as he was running, uh, if you will, for his life, he carried with him this burden for the Thessalonian believers he had left behind, burdened and wondered how they were doing in the midst of the persecution that had been stirred up during his time there. He carried with him this constant yearning to know how they were faring in the midst of this. And in the midst of all those prayers, he feels compelled at some point to send Timothy back in order to find out, to find a report of how they're doing. He goes, Timothy goes, he visits with the Thessalonians, he returns to Paul down in Corinth, delivers a report, and then Paul writes this letter of 1 Thessalonians. And as he writes the letter, he's He's just gushing forth with thanksgiving, overflowing, talking about what it is that he was so grateful for in his prayers to the Lord as he heard the report of their response and their steadfastness. 
It comes to us really as an instruction for our prayer life, an instruction for our thanksgiving. It tells us what was so burning on Paul's heart, what was so important to him that he looked out for it, that he gave thanks for it the way that he did. And it marks for us what you and I ought to be grateful for. It gives us kind of a paradigm of prayer in thanksgiving, a, a, even a, 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 a pattern, a mark of what we ought to be thankful for in our own church, the ways we ought to be grateful, the kind of qualities that we should be looking for, and the kind of things that we ought to be thanking God for in our own midst. We looked at the first one last week in the first, uh, or really the second verse there, when Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God, the Father, your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. So the first thing Paul mentions in his prayer of thanksgiving was We called it the motives of their ministry. He was looking back and he was remembering, he says, what he saw with his own eyes, that as they received the gospel, they they threw themselves into ministry with all of the right motives, with all of the right purposes. There was work that was produced by their faith. There was labor that was produced by their love. And there was a steadfastness that was produced by their Hope. They were a busy church, working, laboring, diligently, enduring the many trials and difficulties. But Paul gave thanks that he understood where all of that stuff was coming from. It wasn't just coming from some, some uh, uh, jealous attempt to outdo their, their fellow believer. It wasn't coming from some uh, attempt at performance and achieving some... Uh, standing before God. It wasn't any of that stuff. He understood that all of this stuff was flowing out of the genuine work of the Lord in their hearts, in faith, in hope, and in love. And it made him so grateful that he could see the sincerity of their faith in that. But it wasn't the only reason, because beginning in verse 4, he also mentions a second reason. And that is, we'll take up our time today, which is the evidences of their election. The evidences of their election. He says, for, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Now this is the second reason why he's so grateful. It is because he says he knows their election. He knows that they have been chosen by God. He is certain of it. He has confidence in it. Now the question is, how does Paul know that? How is he so confident in this idea of God's sovereign election of them? When you begin talking about God choosing and God's predestination and His 
Election is something that we all recognize is hidden in the mind of God. It is an eternal decree that really is hidden within His counsels. But Paul is saying he knows it. Not because he understands those decrees. Not because he understands that eternal counsel. Not because he's able to unravel all the mysteries of election in God's mind. But he knows it, he says, because he was able to see the evidence of it afterward. There's no way, of course, Paul could have known or any person could know whom God would choose before they respond to the gospel. Because there's nothing within man or woman, there's nothing within us that gives any indication of that. There's nothing within us that would give any predisposition to that. Nothing in us that would give any marker of that. There's nothing we might even say outside of the mind of God that would determine what that election is. Nothing which determines, nothing which distinguishes us, whether we'll be elect or not. It is all wrapped up in the mind of God. Nothing to explain why He chooses or why He doesn't. Nothing, that is, except for the love of God. That's the only explanation that's ever given. In fact, even right here, Paul refers to, you'll notice the Thessalonians, he says, we know, brothers, loved by God. He refers to them that way because he knew that God had set His sovereign electing love on them. Because that's the only thing that explains it. This is the way election and predestination is always referred to is an act of sovereign love. The Lord had said to Israel, back in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. He's saying, you want to know why the Lord loves you? It's because the Lord loves you. You want to know why He set His affection on you? Because He set His affection on you. You want to know why God is merciful? Because He's merciful. There is no other explanation. There's no explanation within you. It's not because you were more than other people. It's not because you were more righteous, more mighty, more noble. It wasn't because of any of those things. If God has set His sovereign electing love on you, it is because of what is wrapped up in His own divine counsels, His own eternal purposes. He set it out before time began. Ephesians 1 tells us that. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. So before time even began, before the world even began, before Adam was ever made, before any of those things, This was in the mind of God. Or another way to say this is that God determined this in His eternal purposes before there ever was time. Before there was ever day and night, before there was ever sun and moon, before there were ever stars. God determined this. And we might add there was never a moment when this wasn't there. There was never a blank Or a time when God's plan, with all of its parts, was not known to God. Was not fully determined. 
It's not like God had an aha moment where he woke up one day and said, oh, I figured this out. I've decided what I need to do. God doesn't change like that. He doesn't learn. He's all-knowing all the time. So he's always had the plan. And his plan, his determination was to set his love and his affection on certain people. And so God's love is the explanation. He determined that before the world began, he would set his love, or we might even say in different terms, he foreknew certain people, which is just another way of saying that he had special regard for, or he entered into uh, an intimate relationship with, or he set his affections on. That's what foreknowledge is really saying that God set His special affection on certain people before time. Certainly not suggesting that God discovered people or knew people in the sense of intellectual knowledge, but He knew them by way of personal affection, personal commitment. That's why at the end of Time at the final judgment, there will be some people who come before Christ and they'll say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your name? And how will the Lord respond? Depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. Not that I was not aware of you, not that I didn't know you existed. But he's saying, I never knew you in the sense of foreknowledge. I never knew you in the sense of being committed and setting my affection and my love on you. When God tells Israel in Amos 3, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. He's not saying I'm unaware that there are other nations out there. But he's saying that I knew you in a unique way, in a special way. So when God says he foreknows, he foreloves. And that is the electing purpose of God. And so Paul says, this is who you are. You are beloved of God. And I know that. I know that you are His special people. I know that you have been elected and chosen by Him. How? How can you know that, Paul? Well, very easy. He says, I know that because of the way the gospel came to you and the way you responded. Really, if you want to break it down, that's it. I know that you're chosen by God because of the way the gospel came to you and because of the way you responded. You'll see what he says there in verse 5. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word but also in power. It obviously came in word. It certainly was part of it. Paul doesn't diminish the fact that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The message, in other words, has to be verbalized. It has to be articulated. It was more than just what some people call lifestyle evangelism. Paul wasn't just living a moral and upright example before them. He knew and he understood and he certainly did communicate the truths of the gospel. That was basic. 
In fact, you'll notice he's not even describing the way that he and the other missionaries came to them. He's describing the way the gospel came to them, the message of salvation. When the gospel came, he says, it came with, all, with words, but not only words. It also came with power. And this was the evidence that God had chosen them. It was the way the word of God impacted their life. It was power displayed to them. It broke through their hardened hearts. It opened up their blinded eyes. And it revealed the glory of God. This has always been the case. The Word of God preached. Jesus Christ can preach it. Paul can preach it. Anyone can preach it. And people can sit and listen to it. And within that group of people, there will be some for whom Paul says it is foolishness to them. They'll sit there and they'll listen to a preacher or they'll listen to a sermon. They'll go home. They'll tell their spouse. They'll tell their friends. That was foolishness. All of that stuff, that is just psychological mumbo jumbo. That is just some sort of uh, psychological sedative for people to get through the difficulties and trials of their own insignificant life. And there will be other people who sit there and listen to the same message, the same words, the same circumstances. And they'll walk away and they'll say, that is the power of God. I encountered God today by those words. And this is what Paul's talking about. This message came with an experience of power. It impacted them. It revealed in their heart their sin. It opened up their conscience and showed them their guilt, the nature of their sin. But it also gave them hope. It gave them hope. This is what Paul saw in the Thessalonians. A power that impacted their life, that touched their life and revealed to them the glory of God. And with that power, Paul says, it also came in the Holy Spirit. That's the source of the power. The Holy Spirit empowered the Word so that it penetrated their hearts. And this is what must happen if the Word is going to have its effect. The Spirit must take the Word. In other words, this power that Paul's talking about wasn't just some sort of uh, personal persuasiveness. It wasn't just slick emotionalism. It wasn't Paul's tricks to, to um, you know, employ on the naive. He's saying this was power, but it didn't come from us. It wasn't from our rhetoric. It wasn't from our techniques. This was power by the Spirit. Piercing into the hearts of those whom God was working in. Without all of that... Preaching, for all of its passion and all of its technique, all of its art, all of its persuasiveness, preaching is just barren words. My preaching, your preaching, anyone's preaching. If the Spirit isn't attending to it, if the Spirit isn't showing His grace, it's just barren words. As John Stott says, the word of God is the sword, Spirit's sword. 
The spirit without the word is meaningless. And the word without the spirit is powerless. That's what we have to remember. This is what Paul no doubt prayed as he went out and shared the gospel wherever he went. That the spirit would take the words that he's sharing and make them powerful in the hearts and minds of people. This is where his dependence was. This is where he was constantly leaning on. Even as he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look, I decided when I was with you not to come, come to you with persuasive words and the wisdom of men so that your faith would not rest on those things, but on the power of God, the power of the Spirit. And Paul saw that with the Thessalonians. The power of the Spirit moving in their hearts to bring deep and permanent change. And then thirdly, Paul says the gospel came with full conviction. The gospel came with full conviction. Now he's talking about the way the gospel came to them. Not the way that they received the gospel. He will get to that. But what he's talking about here is the way that it was presented to them. It was presented to you, he says, with full conviction. This is the way Paul and Silas presented it. They presented it with all of the assurance, all the conviction in their hearts. All that welling up within them as they preached. And he makes it clear Even in the next phrase, he says, for, and some translations even uh, don't translate the causal particle there, but it's there. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. This is sort of the evidence of the persuasiveness. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about the way that he and Silas preached. They preached with with, with, with conviction. Fullness of conviction. And this is just amazing to me. Because Paul says this is one of the evidences of your election. This is the way that I know that you're saved. Because of the way the gospel was preached to you. The fact that it came to you from men who were full of conviction, that you could see it in their life, that it made an impact on them, that they lived it out in front of you, and you knew what kind of men we proved to be. Paul, of course, was a man full of conviction about the message that he preached. He was confident of its message, of its truthfulness, of its relevance, of the necessity of people to hear it. And it manifested itself in his life. It manifested itself in full conviction. But it was this conviction which caused Paul, particularly in Thessalonica, to endure all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the rejection as he was constantly under assault. You remember it began early, this persecution, and it was intense. It came within weeks. We're told the third week he was there, they were already railing against him. And the Thessalonians saw that and they remembered that. 
And they understood then the truthfulness of this message. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. When the Apostle Paul is talking about his own ministry. And he's, he's looking for ways, if you will, to authenticate his his uh, uh, apostolic ministry and his authority. And he says to them in, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse uh, 21, For whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, with far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at the sea in frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, he says. So when Paul wants to point to, when he wants to bolster the confidence of the Corinthians, in his own veracity, and we would say even the veracity of his message, he points to his sufferings. Well, you go back to 1, Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I think this is what Paul has in mind. He's telling them from his own personal testimony, he says, you saw, you received the preaching by this deep felt conviction of the necessity of the preaching, which drove us through all of the trials and all of the difficulties. Paul will even get to that in the following verse or two. All of this, he says, this conviction, it wasn't just the raw personality of Paul and Silas. It wasn't the evidence of their, their own personal tenacity and stubbornness. It wasn't based on their temperament. What Paul is telling them is that this is the work of God. This conviction by which the message was preached to you, it is the work of God. The fullness of conviction, the assurance that allowed us to endure all of the persecution, all of that stuff, that's not natural. It has no explanation in the natural world. There's no reason why... Men and women would endure that. There's no reason why they wouldn't just pick up their bags and move on down the road to an easier place, smoother sailing, a place where they might even perceive that the word would be better received. Paul says there was a conviction that welled up in his heart and Silas's heart about the word of truth, about its importance, that drove them not to run away from the situation, to bear up under it, to keep on preaching. And he says, this is what kind of men we prove to be for your sake. Some of you 
are sharing the gospel right now in situations. And it is discouraging and it is trying. And you feel like you're beating your head against the wall or you feel like there's opposition coming against you. You feel like you're about to pay some massive price. You're about to lose your job. You're about to lose this relationship. You're preaching and preaching and preaching. And yet you can feel stirring inside of you something that's telling you you've got to keep preaching. The Spirit working within you. Because somewhere out there, someone you're preaching to, He has chosen for salvation. And He's looking for a messenger. Someone who will be filled with the Spirit and be filled with His conviction and press through all of those things and keep on preaching to the point that He can save those that He is calling through you. That's where Paul was. He says, I'm convinced... I'm convinced of your election because God kept me preaching. Because there's a fullness of conviction in the way that we preach. And so I know that you're chosen. Because God was somehow working through me. Paul couldn't take credit for it. He wouldn't take credit for it. It wasn't something that was his own doing. But it was the evidence of God in his work. Part of this, no doubt, was Paul hoping and believing and growing in his own faith and his own endurance. Part of it was the supernatural work of God giving him endurance, even beyond his own abilities. I know I would have probably given up. I know I probably would have moved on. Paul no doubt would have given the same testimony himself, but God gave him this deep conviction to keep on preaching. And that is evidence that he wanted you to hear, Paul's saying. Oh, that the Lord would be pleased to give us that kind of conviction. That he'd be pleased to capture hearts through our burning zeal like that. Paul says, I know you're elect. I know you're elect because of these things, because of how the Word of God came to you, but also know you're elect because of how you responded to the Word of God, which is really what he moves into in verse 6 and a fourth element of his confidence. He says, because you became imitators of us. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. They imitated the life of Paul. They imitated the life of Silas and ultimately of the Lord. And that kind of imitation gave him assurance. You might think, well, that's kind of bold for Paul pointing out the imitation of himself as the evidence that someone knows Christ. But Paul understood how this works. He understood the, well, what we might say is the natural, even the logical pathway of how this unfolds in the life of new believers. He understood this was typical. Because new believers, they see a lot more than they probably understand. They interact principally with those who first share the gospel with them before they interact with the Word of God. They learn so much more by the picture that's set before them of the life of those who they watch. So in fact, 
These believers imitating Paul for him was a clear sign of their desire to live out the Christian life. They were making changes in their life. They were being transformed. They were leaving behind sinful ways and adopting the patterns of life that they saw in Paul and Silas. And Paul saw that. He knew that and he knew eventually this would lead them to the ultimate goal, which is the imitation of Christ. That over time, they would walk in His footsteps. They would ride with His training wheels, if you will. Until they learned to walk in the footsteps of Christ. And Paul understood this sequence. He, he could, in fact, rejoice with it. Over the initial eagerness of these believers to want to do everything that they saw Paul and Silas do. To be able to act the way they saw him act. To be able to imitate their faith. To live their lives that way. And because of that, Paul actually was quite frequent in putting forth his life as a model, as an example. He was confident to do that. He tells them here, they need to be, or I should say he thanks them here for, for the fact that they imitated him. He tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me. As I imitate Christ. He'd already told him in 1 Corinthians 4 to imitate his example. And over and over and over again, he tells people to do this. He didn't hesitate to put his life forward as one to follow because he was confident that if people began on those tracks, it would lead them to Christ. He was confident that they were not going to be led down a pathway of of idolatry, they weren't going to be led down a pathway of immorality, they weren't going to be led down a pathway of apathy. He was confident that if they began to walk down that pathway, they would find the ultimate goal. In fact, right over in 1 Corinthians, First Thessalonians 2, verse 9, he says, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also of how righteously and blameless was our conduct toward you. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul says, look, this is my life. I lived it. You know it. It was open to you. It was evident to you. You could come into my life And follow my example. If you flip back just a couple of pages in your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul says there in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I mean, that's bold. Listen, join in following me. And everyone who does like what I do, do that. You follow their example. I love all this because of what it comes right after. Because if you look right before verse 17, back to verse 12, Paul clearly understands that he has not arrived. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul says, look, don't follow me because I'm perfect. Don't follow me because I've arrived. I will fail. I will disappoint you. I have not made it. I'm not fully there. But follow my example because you will see in me a pattern of doing battle with sin of endurance over the long haul, of pressing forward, reaching forward to the mark, to the upward call of Christ Jesus, you will see a pattern in me of setting aside those things which are to be put behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead. We ought to weigh heavily in our hearts to what extent we can say the same thing. To what extent can you turn to any brother or any sister and you can confidently say, follow and do as I do? Sure, I'm a follower of Christ. Sure, I believe in Christ. But, you know, my life is not exactly the way I would want other people to live it. My prayers are not exactly the way I would want other people praying. My witness is not what I would want other people to do. My Bible reading is not the way that I would want other people to do it. We've got to have lives as we're sharing the gospel that new believers can pattern themselves after. Confident that there's nothing in our life that would lead them away from Christ, but would lead them closer to Him whether it be your children or your neighbors, when you're telling them to follow Christ, you need to be able to confidently say, and do it by following my pattern. Well, the Thessalonians were doing that. Their life was changed. They were following godly examples. It gave Paul confidence in their election. And then fifthly, a fifth element gave him assurance of their having been chosen by God, was their reception of the Word in spite of affliction. Their reception of the Word in spite of affliction. This is what he says in verse 6. You received the Word in much affliction. You remember this is the parable of the soils, right? Jesus talks about soil that was sown and seed that was thrown and some of it fell on rocky ground and it was immediately taken away by the birds of the air some of it fell excuse me on hard packed ground some of it fell on rocky ground some of it he says eventually fell on good ground but that which fell on the the rocky ground kind of sprung up for a period of time it looked like it was the real thing until what until the scorching heat of the sun came out and bore down on it And in the same way, there are those whose faith might spring up for a period of time, but it's not until they go through the trial that that faith is proven. So many of you, even you young people, you kids who 
you would tell me right now, you believe in God, you believe in Christ, and you have been being brought up under, if you will, the greenhouse of your parents' tutelage, but you haven't faced the trial yet. Your faith hasn't been tested yet. And you don't know for sure whether or not you really are one of His elect until such a thing happens. Until you go through the affliction. You remember Jesus' words over in Luke chapter 6. He was talking about all believers. He talks about blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those, he says, who hunger, and blessed are those who weep. But you'll notice even in verse 22 of Luke 6, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is saying, look, there's, a, there's an element of rejection that comes with your faith. There's an element of hatred and mockery by the world that comes with your faith. And when you face it, and when you endure it, you prove your pathway to heaven. You validate with fruits your election. These missionaries knew that. They had come to town. They had shared the message about Philippi. They had told how they were thrown into prison. They had uh, told how they had been rejected. And they had preached that message. They preached. They saw the response of these believers. But they they were burdened. As Paul left the city, he was burdened to know that they would endure through the trials. A well-known poem by Amy Carmichael captures this. She says, Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent. A ravening beast that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can you have followed far, who have no wound and no scar? I think Paul would say that. Have you really gotten started in the Christian life? Have you really followed very far? Do you really know where your faith stands if you haven't been through the trial yet? Paul says, you know, i got confidence in you. I'm thankful. I give thanks even though I know you're suffering because you have endured. You receive the Word in those conditions. Which brings us to a sixth element, which stirred Paul's confidence, and that was simply their joy. They suffered, but there was a joy, he says, in their life. You receive the word with much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit. 
There was, a, there was an outer reality that didn't match the inner experience that they were having, the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Because while they were enduring all of this outward tribulation, at the same time they were experiencing a work in their hearts that didn't make any sense to the outside world, but they were filled with joy. It's an anomaly to an unbelieving world. A frustration maybe as they do everything they can to trip you up in your faith, to trip you up in your walk, to mock and jeer you in everything that you're doing. And all they see is this perennial Christian paradox at work within you, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, finding joy. We read it even this morning from Romans chapter 5. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're able then to exult in our tribulations. Find joy Where all the rest of the world is dejected, all the rest of the world is cast down in despair. We face those things with joy because we know that they are working within us certain character traits, certain strengthening of our faith. And this is the pathway God takes us down so that we can find those joys in Him. Your faith, in other words, isn't a pathway for you to escape all the unpleasantries of life. But they are a platform for you to put on display where your hope really lies. And then the final reason Paul was so confident, really a summation of all the rest, is that they became models to others. Verse 7, you became an example. You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Decaia. They turned around and they made other disciples. This is the evidence of their election, the proof of their Christian life. That when they began to follow, not only the pattern of the Apostle Paul, the pattern of Christ, they began to make disciples. This was their fruit. Paul says, I saw that. It's the ultimate confidence in me that you're elect ultimate confidence in me that God has chosen you is I I knew when the word was preached I knew the power I saw it penetrating into your hearts I even felt the work of the Lord in my heart helping me to persevere through all these trials and all these difficulties I knew God had worked in you and now I see all this evidence all this joy All this endurance. All of this pursuing of godliness. And all of this work at making disciples. People ask me all the time, Pastor, how do I know if I am of the elect? How do I know if I've been chosen? I can't give you a better answer than this. How does the word of God come to you? How does it impact your life? Is it powerful to you? Does it come across with the power of the Holy Spirit? Has God sent messengers into your life? Does He keep calling you? It might be your spouse. It might be your children. Are they persevering through all the difficulties to preach the gospel to you? And how are you responding? With a desire for godliness? A want 
and a yearning in your heart to be like that, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a willingness to embrace the message no matter what the trial, what the difficulty. If that's you, God's at work. God is at work. We want you to respond. We want you to repent. We want you to believe. We cast all this other stuff aside that has filled your life all these years and to cling to Christ, to say He's all you need. We're going to stand and be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song and we'd love for you to respond this morning when we finish in a word of prayer here. Please come see me down front. Talk to me. Let me share with you about the gospel, what Christ calls you to and how you can have eternal life. Father, we're grateful for the word. It does speak and it speaks with authority and power and we're grateful for the spirit impressing it on our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would grant us to leave whatever behind and press forward towards this goal of following Christ, that we might be imitators of Christ and imitators of all the godly examples set before us by Paul, by Silas, by others. That we can say to others, join in following my pattern, my pathway, my footsteps. Lord, we want to see more and more evidence, more and more fruit in our lives. Use us, Lord, to call others that you are calling to this life of faith. And so confirm our faith and magnify your name. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.